welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Today is November the 14th, going into the eighth month of the pandemic lockdown, begun around March the 14th of 2020. Lots of things have happened in that eight months, and I found myself wanting to revisit an episode done early in the pandemic lockdown called Do I Stay or Do I Leave Redux? Some people would say, this is not a problem for me. And I say, if that's the case, that's great. You're blessed. But there are a lot of us who, looking down the long road, are alarmed by the things that we are seeing and experiencing. The far more pious than I am would call what's happening a chastisement. I don't know about that, but I do want to talk about how I've experienced these last weeks of the eight months and to share it with you. And to the extent that you have experienced the same thing, I suppose knowing that you're not alone is a bit of a comfort. On November 9th, I sent an email to the Media Relations Department of my Archdiocese. The issue was my sense, perception, of the continued abdication of the Catholic Church prelates to the lockdown disparately applied to people of faith as winter approaches in California. True, it's more temperate here than it is in other places, so that it is not yet quite a matter of urgency that parishioners are still meeting solely outside to worship God instead of within the parish walls. But the only thing that protected us this past Sunday in a huge wind that rattled the overhang under which priests and servers stood was the fact it was not raining. With some threats of either not lifting the light down as it currently exists or restoring it, which has become the narrative of the last week in many states, including California, to the draconian frames of March and April, May and June, it's looking more and more that the human administrations of the liturgy and the rubrics of the church are ready for a complete capitulation. At least from my local politicians with whom I disagree, I will sometimes get a form letter thanking me for my communication, though the response usually ends with pablum about the deep intention that they have never manifest in reality to fully represent all citizens. I didn't, in this case, get any kind of response so far to my letter to my archdiocese, my lamentation from the pew, or rather from the folding chair outside. So far, nothing. The apparently only thing completely intact from the pre-Vatican days is the clericalism. Obedience is greatly prized even as the average parishioner watches the barge of Peter sinking with nary a bishop plugging the holes into which the murky water pours. There are a few people like Bishop Strickland, some isolated priests, now, I guess it's prideful of me to expect a response from anyone 
in the church who is in a position of leadership. After all, the cardinals who wrote the dubia to Pope Francis have still never gotten a response from him. I didn't think that my sense of being dispirited, ignored, dismissed, betrayed, and confused could get much more intense than it has been, but as the old commercial for our Slicer and Dicer says on old-time TV stations, but wait, there's more. The United States Conference of Bishops, led by the Archbishop of Los Angeles, congratulated Joe Biden on being the president-elect followed by blessings and congratulations from the Catholic Pontiff Francis, including on the historicity of the election. Apropos of nothing, the certification of the status is as yet unpronounced of the second Catholic to be elected to the presidency of the United States. Truth is a multifaceted thing in its new incarnation. It culminates in such delightful interactions between Pope and openly cafeteria Catholic Biden and the rise of a state-sanctioned Catholic Church in China, leaving the traditional church members and their prelates in the red cold. We are exhorted to pray for the intentions of the Pope. I am trying. I am trying. But if the apparent actions represent intentions, it becomes extremely difficult. I say, I pray for the intentions of the Pope if they are in accord with your will and hope that will satisfy the requirement. I know that there are many people, Catholics included, who would say that my view that the Pope's intentions seem to be to destroy the people of faith in China and to support the man as president who would promote and legislate for and implement the legislation for the abortion of a child right up to the moment of its coming out of the womb. I understand that I might be considered a naive, stupid, conservative, quasi-traditional Catholic who is troubled by the fact that you can support Biden by drawing up this neat list of proportional pros and cons. On the con side, he favors abortion. We don't really like abortion, we Catholics, but then there are the pros, cast in general terms of peace, love, unity, humanity, that are vacuous to me, to me, for a lack of particulars, which somehow miraculously outweigh the one big con. And it appears that the leaders of the church those here in America and those abroad, if they could vote in America, are perfectly fine with that level of proportionality. It has become pretty clear in the last 60 years, culminating in these confounding days, that what is plainly in the catechism, what allegedly has been taught by the magisterium, and what is a commandment of God himself related to thou shalt not murder, really doesn't mean any of those things and there is no need to follow them, or any of the precepts, unless they accord with a personal conscience, which has the benefit of extraordinary malleability. It's not that your or my conscience needs to be formed using the guidelines of once unchangeable truth as passed on since the foundings of first Judaism and then of Christianity, and in recognition of the plain 
plain meaning. No, your conscience is formed first by your need, your feeling, your desire to transform unchangeable truth into something more palatable and thus lose any claim to unchangeability. Oh, there are a few contemptible, or dare I say, deplorable fools who try to remind us that you can't support abortion as a policy or as a good because there is no real nuance. Exceptions notwithstanding that do not negate the rule in the devastation to 60 million children, human beings just like you and me. Oh, again, you say, I can point to the exceptional case of a friend who needed to have the abortion so she could live. Does that exception account for the 60 million? I digress, but it's all part of the profoundly confusing big picture and the profoundly discouraging big picture. I said there are a few prelates and priests who challenge the big picture as it seems to be currently extant in Catholic thinking, and they are the subjects, objects of fraternal correction. We have the word, according to Biden, to which we must bow. Mr. Biden will, he has promised, locked us down again, and he will assure that abortion is ever the law of the land. Kamala Harris will be his enforcer of that law. And apparently, standing behind them, next to them, will be the august body of the USCCB. One cannot help but wonder whether there will be renewed blessings and congratulations by any of our prelates. Remember when you were a kid and your grandparents would lament about how the world was no longer a place they recognize and that it was all going to hell in a handbasket? And they were glad they wouldn't be around to see how much worse it would get. We used to laugh at them. Oh, Grandma, it's just that we're more modern, more with it, more knowledgeable. Conscience is interpretable. What I need it to be, which allows me to change the unchangeable. Presto, changeo. And best of all, I got the power of the leaders in every walk of life who say, yes, this is the way. The unchanging truth is that the truth changes. I'm uh, actually worried that I won't have the luxury of saying that I'm glad I won't be here to see it get worse. I'm afraid that I am going to be here not only to see the worst of it, but the end of it. And that scares the heck out of me, to tell you the truth. The other thing that scares me, when I did that other podcast a few months ago, Should I Stay or Should I Leave, which is not just directed at me, but at anyone who's struggling with all of the craziness around us, I was having a hard enough time, and I knew others who were having a hard time sticking with, and I use the word the church, but sticking with the manifestations of how the church seems to be presenting itself in the world. I concluded then that it made sense to stay because the actual church was Christ, and we are extensions of him, and the thing to do was to stay completely concentrated on him, on Christ in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity. But here I am, many months later, with the same battle going on within me. What motivates this 
revisit of the subject is because, frankly, I'm so dispirited right now. Don't know if I'm the only one. I'm guessing I'm not. I have believed fitfully, but definitely in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I have believed that my job is to follow Christ through death to resurrection. I have believed that there are very specific goods and evils, virtues and sins, again fitfully, but I have lived my life with these truths as my center and tried to confess and be reconciled when I failed. It was hard enough when the truths were professed as unchanging, but every single thing around me now is saying, and it's as if the devil himself is standing there saying, you have been a fool although they'd never say it to my face, when you look at places like Facebook, you know that people that you've long known and respected will see me and others like me as the ones who are distorted and uncharitable. I have to tell you, I really get Eve's dilemma. In the Garden of Paradise, it was all very simple, pure, uncomplicated, unchangeable truth. And this force is hammering at her as she stands before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and is prodding her and prodding her, saying that God doesn't know what he's talking about, that she's a fool to have been following him and walking with him among the beauty of the trees of paradise. God, after all, was limiting her choices. The devil's making her feel bad, making her feel stupid and controlled in one willful but impulsive act, she does that which makes her feel better. For the moment, the devil convinced her she would be a fool to listen to the unchangeable God. The outcome was swift. Get out of paradise. So it's easy for me right now to imagine myself standing in front of that tree with all the forces arrayed around me, telling me that what ought to be obvious to me is, is, is not, but it is to people I respect, people I know, people I care about, who, who, who say that I've got it completely wrong. And not only are friends and potentially family saying it, but those who lead the church, those who I see in the forefront are telling me the same thing. What I was given to understand and to believe was true that this church really was the body of Christ can't be so, or it wouldn't get bastardized so. If it is so easy to nuance, to dismiss and proportionalize till it is unrecognizable, then the Ten Commandments, the Catechism, the Magisterium, they're all themselves a lie. So I think, I'm done. I can do this by myself. I can be good by myself. Oh, he is a talented one, the Prince of Lies, in pushing me to leave the church. And the pull is very, very strong. The good Catholic today is the one of America Magazine, or Kind Uncle Joe. He is a real Catholic. Any of us who would even think of adhering to the very difficult, it is true, articles of faith, are stupid and worse, we're evil. It's as if the devil not only speaks to us to leave the side of God's church, but prods us until we want to literally jump out of our skins. He tempts me to think of Sede Vacante, 
that after so many ambiguous and even clear, apparently, disputations of what seems left of the church law, presumably laid down by Christ when he built his church upon Peter the Rock, the chair of Peter is vacant. No, I don't think that, because I know that this pope was validly elected, and if he is validly elected, he is the pope. So I can't say that I believe in Sede Vacante at this stage, but I do feel that virtually every time he speaks offhand, and by the way, he has never spoken ex cathedra, that is, with infallibility, but what I feel is that there's always this little spiritual stab of utter confusion. Well, at least so far, I'm not actually in schism because he is the Pope. So instead of just leaving, why not, she thinks again, joining one of those traditional parishes? It's not the first time that I have considered it. I'd have to give up something, a couple of somethings I've been doing for years with the Novus Ordo. I've been a lector since 1987 at my parish, which, by the way, has successfully blended the Novus Ordo with the liturgical formality of the traditional Mass celebration. And I'd have to give up a second thing. I've been a server since about, oh, I don't know, 2011. The man who was my pastor in the earlier days of my attendance at this parish didn't allow women to do other than lector and so as long as i attended his 1215 i did not serve and i was perfectly fine with that i accepted his view in obedience but after he retired the new pastor had no such objection and i was privileged to assist him in celebrating mass particularly as his illness robbed him of the use of his hands and his body in time it would be a sacrifice for me to leave that behind in joining a traditional parish where that is not allowed but it would not be an obstacle for me in joining one i would look at it as i was privileged to do it and that is no longer god's will for me so in that, there is not so much pride. But what I think I would have a problem with is that the interactions I have had with and observations of those who want to return entirely to pre-Vatican II liturgy is a kind of a feeling, if you will, that they kind of look down on those who have been or are still somewhat faithful to the Novus Ordo as it is somehow, in their view, deficient. It is much the same behavior under different circumstances as what secularist Catholics do to those who are still trying to be in communion with the faith as it is written, treated as if we are the outsiders and the heretics, if you will. So pride and contempt and cruelty are just as much the realm of any group whether it be traditionalist Catholic, secularist Catholic, Novus Ordo practitioner, the devil prods them as well as the rest of us. And sometimes I wonder if they forget that. I worry for them about schism. And, and as I've observed before for myself, I do believe that the Novus Ordo liturgy, insofar as it brought the people into the essence of the, of, of the mass, was Holy Spirit inspired. If I've confused you, don't worry, because I'm confused myself. Where am I in all of this? It's kind of a sometimes rageful, which is a sin, holding pattern. 
On the other hand, one could say that it's better than an impulsive act of listening to the devil and walking away. And if I were to walk away, where would I walk to? I'd be smack dab in the quicksand muck with no way of escape, jettisoning myself from the incredible taste of paradise that is walking with God. So as I was considering making notes for what I realize is a bit on the edge of a rant, I ran across a podcast of someone that I do listen to from time to time. I listen to all sides, the conservative side, the liberal side, the in-between side, and I'm trying to decide which side makes any kind of sense. Anyway, his name is Taylor Marshall, who's a convert to Catholicism, and he is on the traditional side of it. He was critiquing the problematic conduct of our leadership uh, in telling Catholics that Joe Biden is the Catholic to admire, so he was on the same subject that I am and was worrying me. But then he went to a Gospel of Matthew that sort of, again, as happens when I'm doing these programs and going on about the things I'm concerned about and not knowing what to do, something that focused me and made me think again about rushing to any kind of judgment and trying to listen for what God actually wants. We've all remembered the parable of the sower of the seeds, the seeds that went on stony ground, the seeds that went on thorny ground, the seeds that went on good ground. But there is an additional aspect, a notation by our Lord, that in the area where there is fruit, where the seed does grow, something else grows with it, and that is weeds. He calls them cockle, and that weed almost overtakes the good seed. Just as uh, Taylor Marshall did, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to use the version that he used, which is the Douay-Rems version of the Bible and of the New Testament. And the passage is in Matthew 13, beginning at paragraph 26. And when the blade was sprung up and had brought forth fruit, then appeared also the cockle. And the servants of the goodmen of the house coming said to him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? Whence then hath it cockle? And he said to them, An enemy hath done this. And the servants said to him, Wilt thou that we go and gather it up? And he said, No, lest perhaps gathering up the cockle, you root up the wheat also together with it. Suffer both to grow until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather up first the cockle, and bind it into bundles to burn, but the wheat gather ye into my barn. Now, later on, the apostles want a little bit more to understand this part of the parable. So, beginning at paragraph 36, they go on. Then having sent away the multitudes, he came into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Expound to us the parable of the cockle of the field, who made answer, and said to them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And the good seed are the children of the kingdom, and the cockle are the children of the wicked one. And the enemy that sowed them is the devil, but the harvest is the end of the world." And the reapers are his angels. Even as the cockle, therefore, is gathered up and burnt with fire, so shall it be at the end of the world. So thank you, Taylor Marshall, for pointing me to this section of the gospel, because 
it helped. It helped a lot. I sometimes see us as sort of standing in a, in a pocket and all of these forces are coming and pushing us back and it seems impossible to stand the ground and nowhere in daily life seems to be without any kind of taint. I can remind myself that despite what I see, there is overwhelmingly good soil and there are fruits of that good soil. And I have to focus on those elements and not so much on the input from the devil and the world that would cripple spiritually and emotionally and psychologically all at once. I have to be wise in what I say when I refer to the word church. The church is not like any other institution. It's not like the government. Although it feels like that sometimes because human beings are, what's the word, trying to present to the world the law of Jesus Christ, and they fail too often. The church is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the church who joined us and remains with us in the Eucharist. Nothing and no one changes that. The Bible, it's dismissed by so many. And yet, when you read it, there is an absolute uncanny understanding and conveyance of the love of God, the prideful failures of man, exactly as they look today as they were then prior to the time that our Lord redeemed us. The rosary. It's a good way to turn off the evil promptings of the devil. Meditating on the life of Christ and how cooperation with him in utter humility and abandonment will drown out the lies of the devil. And in that, the Blessed Mother is an incredible model for us because she is a human being like us. Going back to the papacy, one doesn't have to like everything the Pope says, but praying for his intentions is not a concession to any of his failures, should he have failures. Remember, he too is a human being and he falls, but his intentions, I have read, his proper intentions are laid out for us in something called the reculta, a categorization of indulgences. To pray for the Pope's intentions is not giving him leave to vary the faith. It is for the progress of the faith and the triumph of the church, peace and unity among Christian princes and rulers, conversion of sinners, the uprooting of heresy. Perhaps staying with a kind of psychic muffling away from the outside drumbeats, no matter what happens, even as and if the world ends soon, I will be awake and ready and having not given in to the devil and walking away to spiritual oblivion, but to stay with God as best as I can and with his grace. I've said that before, but I always come back to it because somehow or another, things I run into, things I read, bring me back to it. So I suspect there's a certain amount of providence in that. There are some practical, earthly things to be done. I have been working on those. A little less Facebook or other social media, which inevitably sends me into a funk. More silence, as I did the notes for the program, and my sliding door was delayed still, but my entrance door was open, so there was nothing but a pleasing silence, punctuated by the call of crows and the lighting of the hummingbirds on my feeder. I suppose there is a sort of one-day-at-a-time aspect of all of this. 
in dealing with all of the inputs that come at me from the outside and at you, at all of us. I can't see a viable alternative to staying in the church in Jesus Christ, who is its unsullied head. I have to pray to be steadfast, to be good in the way he wishes it, and to rest in him. But don't be surprised if you hear another episode, the should I stay or should I leave a third evaluation in my church and in the world. There are a whole bunch of us who seem to have no place, even where supposedly we are trying to be on the same page. I'm made to question my very premises constantly, the apparent premises, as if they actually do not exist. Whenever I ask the question, where do I go? I realize that the answer is always the same. There really is only the Lord, assuming I continue to believe in him, which seems to me to be the only logical course for both physical and spiritual survival. So we come to the end of a perhaps confusing version of this podcast, Ordinary Old Catholic Me. If you're liking what you're hearing, do please hit like on the Podbean website so that you can follow me. It's not like, actually. It's uh, followers. I think I have about 16, which is very small, but I'd like to have more. And even if you disagree, I hope that you enjoy the episodes. And for those of you who are struggling with the same issues that I am, well, we're all really in it together in a big spiritual sea.